Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or get two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Anglican ordinands studying in the UK, Ireland or the Diocese in Europe are eligible for a free subscription while they study. Apply at churchtimes.co.uk forward slash ordinands. And join us on Tuesday the 29th of September for a virtual festival of preaching. Speakers include Mark Oakley, Rachel Mann and Malcolm Geitz. To find out more, visit festivalofpreaching.hymnsam.co.uk Hello, I'm Ed Thornton, Assistant Editor of the Church Times. This week I'm joined by Paul Vallely. He'll be well known to our readers for his weekly column in our comment section. He's also the author of numerous critically acclaimed books, including a biography of Pope Francis. Paul's latest book is Philanthropy, from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, published by Bloomsbury and available from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of £25. The book was reviewed by Alan Billings in last week's Church Times, and this week we publish an extract. Paul, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. Um, This is a a major piece of work. Can I start just by asking um, how the idea for this came about, and, and it must have perhaps taken a number of years to, to research and write? Yeah, it's taken six years. Uh, well, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, I got approached by a philanthropist uh, who uh, was looking for someone to write a history of English philanthropy. And he said he would give me two years worth of research money. So six years later, um, the, uh, the book was finished. Um, when I began, I realized quite quickly, you can't write a history of English philanthropy because you've got to go back to the Greeks and because um, they coined the phrase, but then, you know, the ancient Hebrews uh, had an important in, input into the shaping of modern philanthropy. And then you go through and you get to the present day and philanthropy is completely global. So the idea of English philanthropy, that wasn't going to work. Um, and for the first uh, year or so, I kind of paddled around in various random things that you know as things were, were when there was a speech being made or a conference or something I'd go along to it and and I was just kind of not sure what my focus was going to be and then uh, I I suddenly realized what it what it ought to be um, and it was about uh, the spiritual dimension of philanthropy having been lost and uh, and how um, the uh, modern philanthropy uh, or what people call philanthrocapitalism, which is big businessmen who've made huge fortunes in the modern high-tech world, digital fortunes, uh, they, they are um, pursuing a kind of philanthropy which is very um, top-down and fact-driven. And they, it's, it's very much to do with data and measurements, and it's, very, it's the head and the heart has gone out of philanthropy a lot, and I wanted to find a way of reuniting the two. And once I clicked that that was the point of the, of the, uh, uh, the, the exercise, then the material began to take shape and fit into that narrative. I see. Could we go back to the start then? I mean, is, did it really begin with Aristotle, the, the definition of philanthropy? Uh, no, I mean, the first use of the word philanthropy is in Aeschylus, but uh, uh, my wife pointed out that nobody could uh, spell Aeschylus and they thought it began with E and it didn't sound like A to Z like Aristotle to uh, Zuckerberg did. So, so uh, But Aeschylus uh, wrote the story of Prometheus, uh, the god who 
took fire and gave it to man. And uh, philanthropy was a term of abuse uh, because it was uh, phil, love, anthropos, people, uh, lover of people. And it was the gods saying to Prometheus, you're just a lover of people. Um, and uh, they didn't like it because uh, what happened was power was passed across with fire humanity was able to do something they couldn't do previously. And that really, going right to the other end of the scale, is a key thing that philanthropists need to work out how to transfer power. So the Greeks had this, this notion uh, that uh, it was about uh, your place in society, um, yeah, social cohesion, social harmony, I suppose they would have called it. And uh, Aristotle comes in because he said, uh, you know, it, it took it to a different level, as you would expect. And he said, uh, oh, um, it's really about the formation of moral character. You give because it improves you, not because it improves the other people. I mean, obviously, there are responsibilities to how you give it to other people, but it's, a, it's, it's about you. So the Greeks were very focused on society and uh, man's place in, in society. And it was very much men in those days. Then, across the other side of the Middle East, about the same time, uh, the Jews had this revolution and they um, started to believe only in one God. And all the many gods of the pagan uh, era uh, were set aside in favour of the one God. And the one God, the covenant, uh, men and women, Adam and Eve, the every man and every woman, made in the image of God. And that changed the dynamic entirely because if you're made in the image of God and God is, um, is giving all of this creation to you, then you have a responsibility to be like God and to give yourself, to give to other people. And so you had a different kind of dynamic, a different triangle where you had God, you and everybody else. Uh, so instead of being about society, it was about community. And uh, the, lower, the lower levels of, of society had to be included because that was what God wanted. And Christianity then developed. It took bits of the, the Greco-Roman um, vision, but mainly the Jewish one. And it developed it by saying, when you give to the poor, you give to Christ. You do what you do for the least, uh, you do for me. And that kind of incarnational um, truth set philanthropy on a thousand year journey in which it became you know institutionalized it was part of the warp and weft of society it was there in tithes in parishes bishops were seen in the early years as as, as mainly as dispensers of philanthropy uh, monasteries uh, a whole millennium of uh, christian charity in which there, uh, there was this kind of jewish sense of covenant uh, of people belonging together and the medieval theologians talked about the mystical body of Christ, which was that we are all in some ways, in this, some kind of cosmic, mysterious way, we're all connected to Christ. We all are Christ. And so when the rich gave to the poor, they were doing that in, in emulation of, 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 of God. But the poor were praying for the rich uh, because uh, the medieval theologians had, had developed notions that riches were were you know, were a trap and um, the rich needed help and the poor could pray for the rich. So there was a kind of circle of reciprocal, uh, mutual uh, bonding together. And then 
just at the end of the Middle Ages, that began to dissolve. And uh, that's the, the, the kind of uh, the jumping off point for the changes, the, the two traditions of philanthropy, the Jewish and the Greek, um, lost their sense of balance. And the Greek, uh, Greco-Roman one, the Romans were very in favor of um, philanthropy as a kind of means of social control and to buy the favor of the population, bread and circuses and all that kind of thing. And um, that, you know, if, if, if a Roman built a monument, he would write on it, uh, De Sua Pecuna Fecit, built with his own money. So it was to kind of to establish the importance of the, uh, uh, of the giver. And that tradition became dominant then. And the more uh, heart, the Jewish tradition, pops up all the way through the history of philanthropy, but it becomes subservient to this kind of Roman notion, uh, which has come through right through into philanthrocapitalism. I mean, you're right that philanthropy is not the same thing as altruism but there are significant overlaps between the two. Um, could, you, could you expand upon that a bit? Do people often get the two confused? Well, altruism, you know, as the word, we, as we've got it, comes from the Enlightenment. It comes from the French in the Enlightenment. And it, it, was, it was about, uh, you know, the, the good of others in a, in, a, in a very kind of idealistic sense, uh, in a very particular sense. Um, philanthropy, as we've seen, it can be about social control. It can be about political ma manipulation. It can be about uh, laundering your reputation. If you run a dodgy business, you think if I give um, money, then you know that will that will make people think better of me. The archetype of that was Andrew Carnegie at the start of the 20th century, who was the richest man in the world. He'd built his property, uh, his fortune on um, ruthless business methods, uh, cornering the market, uh, dodgy deals, and most of all doing his workers down, paying them as, uh, as little as he could and cutting their wages. And, you know, people uh, who worked for him were in a terrible um, state and, and, and some of them even died um, as a result of his strike-breaking methods uh, when they went on strike. So he was a pretty kind of bleak uh, employer in lots of senses. But then he became the model for the great, great philanthropy uh, uh, that set the, the template that was set in the 20th century. Um, in which he thought, right, well, I, I'm going to um, give a lot of this money that I've got away. He developed this theory. Uh, he wrote an essay called Wealth. Uh, and he had this theory, which was that if you, if you die wealthy, you die disgraced. You've got to do something good with your money. And it grew out of the 19th century sense of social Darwinism, the idea that if you got to the top, it was because you were better. Rich people were better than poor people because they'd shown it by accumulating all this wealth. So poor people shouldn't be allowed to decide how money was spent. You shouldn't, shouldn't leave it to your children either because they might not be up to it. They might not have the qualities that you uh, have, that you got, you got you these great riches. So you have to decide what to do with it. And he decided he was going to build ladders for the aspiring uh, poor to climb up. And so he wanted to build parks and swimming baths and concert halls and libraries. He built 3,000 libraries all over the world. Um, I mean, I did my A-level revision in a Carnegie library back in Middlesbrough in the old days. But he, he had this, this counterbalancing thing where he thought that somehow the philanthropy, which he did in the second half of his life, was kind of making up for... Um, the, the contradictions of, of the first half of his life. So philanthropy can be all sorts of things. It's not, it's not just altruism. 
it brings up the question of of how much um, self interest plays a part, and whether that somehow dilutes the gift if if, if somebody is doing it for their own gain, be it um, the feel good factor they get or the accumulation of power. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, uh, you you can have you can have both, and, and they're not necessarily contradictory. If you look at someone like Robert Owen, who built the mills at New Lanark and developed this kind of um, uh, utopian socialism. He uh, was of the, the classic enlightenment view that um, nurture was the key thing, not nature. And so if you put people in a good factory in good working conditions, uh, put their children in uh, kindergarten and then in school, gave people time off, they would be better people and they would, they, they would be better workers. And over in Bradford, Titus Salt had very much the same kind of uh, ph uh, philosophy when when he built Saltair, this 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 model extraordinary place it's really worth worth going to or george cadbury in in building bourneville in um in, in birmingham uh put his chocolate workers in and he you know gave them gardens and uh, gas and hot water and uh you know the whole range of things that working people lacked in those days uh, and he was an interesting development in philanthropy because he thought that philanthropy th that should change the way you did business. Whereas nowadays, the philanthropic capitalists think that uh, business should change the way you do philanthropy. Another thing that comes up in the book is, is the role of the state and whether the state should be um, providing um, for, for people in poverty or whether individuals should come through. I think you discussed this with Rowan Williams in addition to exploring it in some depth in the book, right? Yeah, well, there was a kind of very high-minded high but rather moralising attitude on the part of Victorians in particular, which is the high point of philanthropy in this country. And uh, they had, uh, there was a thing called the uh, Charity Organisation Society, the COS, which, which wanted to, uh, philanthropy to be scientific, and, uh, but also very punitive to you know, make moral reform of the poor. And its critics uh, said COS actually stood for cringe or starve. And one uh, uh, curate in the East End who took against them uh, put in an application for funding from, uh, from the COS, and he put it in in the name of Jesus Christ and, uh, and filled in all his qualifications that he was a, you know, a mendicant preacher, and, uh, and, uh, and the application was rejected because he was obviously you know, a feckless character, this Jesus Christ. So there was this, um, this notion uh, of moralizing and... Um, a lot, there was a, a big backlash against it. And uh, you get, if you look at philanthropists in George Eliot or, or Charles Dickens or in France in Flaubert, you find that it's a, it's a negative portrait of, of philanthropists. They're seen as self-aggrandizing. And um, out, of, out of that, combined with the really progressive philanthropists like uh, William Booth of the Salvation Army, the Roundtrees, the Cadburys, they all began to realize the problems of industrial society were so huge, they couldn't be solved by philanthropy. And uh, in the 19th century, schools and hospitals were provided by philanthropists or by subscription, and, uh, but the state began to regulate them. And the state began to get more involved and there was a big movement to say this was a good thing because philanthropy couldn't cope with the scale of the problems. And so you then got Lloyd George's government around the First World War, bringing in, you know, pensions and uh, free school meals and, uh, you know, various uh, 
underpinnings of what became the welfare state. So it became thought, well, philanthropy is not up to it. Uh, let's leave it all to the state. And then you see that uh, in beverage. Of course, it doesn't work. It's not enough. Uh, there are more dimensions to life than the state can provide. Um, uh, Pope Benedict in, in his encyclical Deus Caritas Est has a line which says that uh, no matter how just a society is, it will always need love because justice isn't an answer to loneliness. And um, in the modern era, we've seen, we've seen that, that wheel turn again and the welfare state is not enough for uh, all kinds of reasons and philanthropy has made a comeback, fueled by this, this huge... Uh, resurgence of of uh, capitalism in in what I, what i am calling the philanthrocapitalist uh, model because of uh, financial deregulation the big bang um the technological revolution the ability of people like bill gates and mark zuckerberg to make fortunes which are on a scale which is as unimaginable as anything since andrew carnegie and john d rockefeller that brings us on to the, the extract we're running this week, entitled How Can Philanthropy Recover Its Lost Soul, I think it is. You, you write about um, philanthropic capitalism as one side of modern philanthropy's personality, and then there's another one which is reciprocal philanthropy. Could you just unpack a bit what you mean by both of those and what your assessment is of, of the merits of each of those? Yeah, well, the, uh, I mean, probably interesting, especially for church science readers, to go back to, to the Reformation here, because... After the Reformation, there were a lot of Protestant propagandists who made out that, you know, the Protestant work ethic, the new Protestant theology made philanthropy scientific and modern. Uh, and it, uh, the Catholic philanthropy for a thousand years had just been haphazard and it was all about people trying to uh, get time off in purgatory and buy their way into heaven. And uh, what the book discovers is that the big changes in philanthropy happened a th hundred years before the Reformation with the rise of, of mercantilism, a monetary economy, the growth of towns, um, and particularly the Black Death, which changed the whole economic model, because suddenly there, there was a lot of land, a lot of work to do, and not very many people. So that changed the balance of power. And so some people went on the road and became beggars, but some moved around, and it was the end of you know, the old feudal system, really. And in that, because you've got this, the, the, these, ch these changes and that's when enclosures began uh, on the land, because you've got these extra large numbers of beggars around, vagrant beggars, the poor began to be seen not as people who needed um, a, bit of, um, a bit of help, but as a danger, a threat to society. They were, you know, the, the prospect of insurrection and so forth. So the attitude of the rich to the poor changed and the poor became somehow to blame and somehow responsible for their own poverty. And at the same time, because you've got all of these rich merchants and, and the growth of the towns, there was suddenly people who had a lot of money to, to, to be benefactors. And it was about a hundred years before the reformation that lay people began to take over control of, of, of charity and the distribution of arms and the whole philanthropic process from the church the guilds and the confraternities were all part of that so the church began to lose its grip on charity then and what ha what happened with the with the rise of capitalism was that you saw some of this sense which i talked about before the medieval sense of people being part of a unit uh, even even if it was a, um, a a spiritual equality in in the face of a huge physical inequality there was something there which which went then in um, philanthropy. And what 
I have tried to do in the, the end of the book is to look at this philanthrocapitalism, this business orientated methods, uh, making philanthropy more businesslike and seeing what the great advantages of it are, like eradicating polio, fantastic, but that pointing out that it does have some disadvantages as well. And the, the disadvantages, I conclude, can be offset by reintroducing some of this other side of philanthropy. So the business kind of philanthropy is very measurement orientated, very data driven, and it, it, can, it can neglect, it go, can go for easy targets. You know, if you're, if you're suffering from a disease that Bill Gates is interested in, that's great. But if, you, if you're suffering from a disease he's not interested in, well, you know, that's tough. So, I mean, how do you rectify those balances? How do you put money into things like uh, campaigns for justice in, 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 against exploitative industries in, in, uh, in developing countries and so forth? Philanthropy is not good at that. So how, how do you rebalance that? And I say the way to do it is to take a modern secular equivalent of that medieval sense of uh, social cohesion and inject it into um, this strategic philanthropy. And I call the new... Uh, way of doing the medieval uh, vision, reciprocal philanthropy. So I look at the end of the book at a number of ways in which you can inject reciprocal philanthropy and marry it with strategic philanthropy to create something which has got more of a human face. And in that sense, philanthropy will rediscover its soul. And is this reciprocal philanthropy partly about the philanthropist, um, not simply giving money and having nothing more to do with the objects of their giving but, but actually it changing them in some sense or them forming some community with the person or the, the group well it it's it's the latter but not the former okay. uh, a lot of these philanthropic capitalists are very involved in the projects they do they micromanage them like they micromanage their businesses and uh they um uh, it's very top down though i mean there's a good example of both bill gates and mark zuckerberg um, spent a lot of money on education projects in the US and uh, were both failures. And at one point, Bill Gates announced, oh, this isn't going very well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it. He had a meeting and he invited all these educationists. I'm stopping this and I'm going to switch to this other track. And um, one of them pointed, one of the educationists pointed out, well, it's all very well for a philanthropist to say that that was a failed experiment. Those three years didn't, uh, didn't yield what we wanted. Uh, but for the kids who were involved in the schools, that's three years of lost education. And it's not, you know, it's not a, a, an equivalence. So you, you look at that and you say, well, why did that go wrong? Well, it was because Bill Gates had this idea that this is what you had to do. And he got some experts and said, this is what you've got to do. How can we do it? And they devised this policy and he put $2 billion into it and it didn't work. Now, if he'd listened to the parents of the kids, if he'd listened to the teachers, if he'd listened to people on the ground, which he started to do now in his philanthropy generally, he's much more listening than he was when he began. And he's got much more sense of partnership uh, um, with the people that he's trying to, to, to help. Um, if, if you can do that, if you listen, uh, you, you take uh, a two-way process, so stuff comes up from the grassroots, ideas come up from the grassroots, and, uh, and it's not all just, look, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the clever guy around here with all the money and I'll decide what happens. Uh, so, so philanthropists need to understand partnership, they need to listen, and uh, they need to 
to, to cede some of their power as well as their money to the people on the ground who, who know whether something will work or not. Maybe just finally, you, you, the book contains some fascinating interviews with philanthropists and theologians, thinkers um, who, are, who, are, who are interested and have expertise in this area. I mean, who, who are a few of the people who, who, who stand out, who you felt you learnt most from, perhaps? Well, I mean, I, I, I started with, uh, with the religious leaders, Rowan Williams, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and uh, Nasser Hagmed, who is the, um, the head of uh, Islamic Relief, which is the biggest Muslim a relief organization in the world. They're based in Birmingham. And I talked to them about what their particular religious worldview had contributed. One of the things that I've not actually labored this point in, in the book, but it's clear as you read through the book that so many of the uh, leading philanthropists throughout the eras have been motivated by their religion. You get the odd one like Robert Owen or a lot of modern uh, philanthropic capitalists who are not motivated by religion but uh, religion has been a key uh, element in philanthropy so so I talked to them and they're they're very interesting I talked to um, Christian philanthropists like uh, Jonathan Ruffer and um, John Studzinski about what motivates them and uh, how how they uh, they they decide what to what to give and what not Ruffer is a great example he's got um, a project up in County Durham in a very deprived area, former mining area, uh, in which he's working with the people on the ground. And, uh, you know, the, the ideas go both ways. I mean, he, he, he started by um, buying all those um, Baroque Spanish portraits in the um, um, Bishop of Durham's palace and refurbishing them all. And then he decided, well, they were probably best where they were. So he bought the castle as well and refurbished that. And then he put all his money into... Um, the surrounding areas and he he came top of the Sunday Times giving list on, in 2019 uh, because he was extraordinarily rich and he's given huge amounts of it away so I talked to, to people like like that um, I talked to uh, a man called Chris Oxley who runs a foundation called Atlantic Philanthropies um, and that was started by a chap called Chuck Feeney who's known as the James Bond of philanthropy because he op operated undercover nobody knew who he was for years and his philosophy is that he wants to give everything away before he dies uh, and he wants his last check to bounce. And um, Chris uh, is the man who's been charged with spending down, as it's called, spending down the, the Chuck Feeney Foundation. He was really interesting. I talked to Richard Branson uh, about, you know, uh, what motivated him. He, he um, uh, finances the elders, which had Desmond Tutu and uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, and other world leaders um, after they'd left office going around trying to sort out um, to mediate in, in, in war situations and, and Branson does that uh, but I also talked to him about his work with NHS which has been much criticised and, and uh, the fact that he um, uh, is a tax exile he doesn't pay tax in this country and people uh, will criticise him for but for his, you know, his philanthropy being a cover for that, he doesn't see that. He sees those as two different, sensible parts of his of his worldview. Um, and then I took I talked to to Bob Geldof and also to Lenny Henry about um, different elements of philanthropy. Geldof is very much in the uh, tradition of um, John Howard, the penal reformer. John Howard in the 18th century was the first man in England to be called a philanthropist. 
And interestingly, contrary to our modern views, he wasn't someone who gave away large amounts of money. He just gave all his time to prison reform. And so uh, in, the, in the Enlightenment period, a philanthropist was an activist. So William Wilberforce was a philanthropist. And in, in you know, Geldof and Angelina Jolly and uh, p people like Lenny Henry are, are in that, the, the modern celebrity philanthropists, they're in that, very much in that tradition. And I talked to, to, to Lenny about comic relief and about the democratization of philanthropy. The ordinary people getting involved through children in need, comic relief, through the whole phenomenon of uh, crowdfunding. Um, and the, I talked to uh, Eliza Manning and Buller, used to be the head of the MI5. She's now in charge of the Welcome Foundation, which is the fourth biggest charity in the world uh, and funds all this medical research. Uh, I talked to her about how... Um, how she's accountable for all this money that she spends. I mean, because one of the big problems in philanthropy is that these rich people, rich foundations can go out and do what they want. And uh, so I was saying to her, well, you know, who holds you to account for this? That was a very interesting conversation. Uh, Neri Woods at the, the Blavatnik School of Government in Oxford talked about a load of uh, really interesting globalization perspectives on philanthropy. And also interestingly defended taking money from the Rhodes Trust uh, you know, got all these Razo at the Rhodes uh, statue in Oxford, but she she doesn't mention the statue, but she defends the the idea of the of the Rhodes Trust. Rhodes was somebody who got made his money from uh, exploiting uh, the colonial situation in in Africa, and rather like Colston and the other people who have their statues pulled down, people say, uh, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't allow his philanthropy to to whitewash his 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 deeds. Um, and you know that is a, that is a fair point, but you know a, a ruthless exploiter who does some philanthropy is still probably better than a ruthless exploiter who doesn't. It's a fascinating book. Thanks for your time, Paul. Just to say again, it's um, philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, published by Bloomsbury, and is available from the Church Times Bookshop for the special price of twenty-five pounds. And do go to our website to see the extract um, this week, and it's in the paper this week as well. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.